They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. Fish was cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shakiri hasn't he the funniest shape. He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. The joke. The joke. From what was whispered as a giant banana skin for Liverpool proved to be just that as Man United produced their best performance of the season against an off-colour Liverpool with a helping hand from VAR in the first half. But Adam Lallana rescued a draw late on for the league leaders um, and to spare their blushes. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree of the Back podcast. How are you lads? Okay, very keen. How are things? Good evening, fellas. So we've loads to unpack um, this evening after Man United and Liverpool's one-all draw in what turned out to be a pretty exciting game that not many had anticipated with United on top um, and two examples of VAR in action. So that's coming up shortly with Keane and Phil. Um, in part two of the show, we'll be talking to Gary Beerton from the cl- fantastic classic football shirts about their success over the years in the market of retro and nostalgic jerseys as they prepare to visit Ireland in November for a, a week-long pop-up shop in Dublin. Um, so onto the game, Phil, we'll start with you. I'm sure in your head you probably had a few hot takes lined up until the equaliser from the Lana um, kind of calmed your, calmed your kettle there for, for towards the end. Um, does, does that feel like a one-point gain sort of result in the circumstances? Yeah, I mean, like, Kev, you're, you're the same as me. Like, there, we've, we're a long time turn, or watching Liverpool teams turn up to Old Trafford. Uh, in good or bad or in different form and putting in performances like that and getting bet. So anytime they can take a point from Old Trafford nearly at this stage, you're nearly relieved. I mean, going into it, it was hard to see any way the Liverpool were going to contrive to not get all three points. And then after the first five minutes, I, I was quickly kind of worried because, you know, as, as you mentioned in your intro, United had that kind of front foot positivity that has been missing from a lot of their play this season. Now, they quickly gave that up but they gave Liverpool a little bit to worry about in the first couple of minutes, and it kind of set the tone for this is going to be one of those Old Trafford days for Liverpool. Um, on 75 minutes, it looked like it was going to be a loss. I, like Liverpool hadn't created a whole heap there, having the lion's share of possession. They, like, pa- in terms of passes, they were more than double what United made in terms of accurate passes, and like they created way more, had more shots rather than let's say created more chances, but it didn't, hadn't created anything too concrete on 75. They woke up a little bit with the changes, and Lallana scored. I mean, I think just for because a, a game where not much outside VAR happened, a draw, I'd probably say is fair. But there, Liverpool couldn't have had many complaints there if United had have eased them out of it because there seems to be this weird hoodoo over Klopp's teams. No, they haven't gone there. They're yet to go there in the league and play well. They mm. played well in the Europa League quarter final uh, second leg. Um, the year that they got to the final but under Klopp they're yet to go to Old Trafford and assert themselves like last season when Liverpool were on City's coattails they dropped points again um, and they, they had a, they had a loss a couple of years ago as well or was that last year they lost no they drew last year the year before they lost I think was it um, the, I don't know what it is about Old Trafford and Klopp's teams they just seem a bit hesitant and United seem to have their back up a little bit for it so I suppose that's a really long wind away saying it's probably a point gained from where they were at half time, at seventy five minutes through, and at eighty minutes through. Yeah, I, I I couldn't really disagree too much with anything Phil says there, lads. I mean, it was I don't know what it, what what it feels like for you as Liverpool fans watching it, but like it, it generally doesn't. I can't remember the last time there was a good United Liverpool mm. game, like a, like a truly like exciting like you know goal-laden kind of affair. It just doesn't really see... It just, like, it still has that little bit of an edge to it. And I thought, I thought as well, um, I kind of commented on it uh, through the game, that I thought Liverpool were actually, like, really, really, really physical. Like, more physical in that game than they would usually be. Like, there was a couple of moments where, like, Fabinho and Van Dijk went in, on like, you know, a little bit sort of, like, on the edge to, to, you know, just about over the edge with Daniel James. Um, you know, they were really giving him a good a good going over as such. But it was it was a bit spunky, like, do you know what I mean? They were going at it hammer and tongs. There wasn't much quality involved, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy for Adam Lallana because he's just 
what a weird career he's had at Liverpool. Do you know, he, he's just never really sort of got going at all. It's just sort of, you know, it's it's all stuttering and starting and, and getting an injury. And, and you know, it's so I was happy for him in that sense. Um, yeah, I just did the, the game itself just sort of didn't really have the quality that you'd expect. It kind of reminded me of um, Jurgen Klopp has these. Phil, you touched on it there earlier on. Jurgen Klopp has not got a great record against United um, yeah. as, a, as as Liverpool boss. It reminded me of um, Klopp when he was at uh, Dortmund, and he didn't have the best record against Bayer Leverkusen um, under Roger Schmidt. Schmidt played the same type of football as uh, as you know that fast counter attacking sort of style. And that that you know that was so prevalent in German football for a long time, and like it was kind of kicked off by by Jurgen Klopp's gegenpressing. But um, they just never really were good games, and that that kind of feels like that, like in those kind of high tempo scenarios with, with United and Liverpool, where you just you don't really expect anything, um, despite the like gargantuan build up and excitement around it, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, like in terms of a point gained. <sighs> I suppose it was good in that, you know, Liverpool didn't lose their unbeaten run, but it's two points dropped from a league. Mm. I mean, let's be honest, lads. Liverpool should be going to Old Trafford and beating that United side. Like, it's not a given that it's going to be a three points, but, you know, they should be winning. Um, and those are the games that they kind of have to win to win the league. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm always pessimistic coming into this fixture. Right. Um, because... Obviously, the rivalry and the history, and it always kind of builds up to a type of game that doesn't really suit Liverpool in that they don't really get to play the type of game that they usually do. Um, and I think this was the most stark example of that, where their decision-making um, and their passing, and the, in particular, they, they tried a couple of long-range kind of cross-field balls that they wouldn't usually try. Um, and it, you felt like... Ignoring the table um, and the form coming into this, that you, Liverpool kind of felt stressed under the occasion. Um, it was a fairly mm. strong atmosphere. Um, mm. And it is, we've kind of played like this now over the past couple of years at Old Trafford, where the crowd um, were up for it, obviously. And I thought, having seen the United starting 11 um, today, that there wasn't a lot of players there where you could point and say, okay, he's going to put in a, t- a big tackle or a huge shift um, mm. and he's going to, and he's going to light away from it. Like you look at the likes of um, Pereira um, and Lindelof and Daniel James was obviously playing in his first uh, United Liverpool fixture. But I thought the way they set up um, with James and Rashford leading the line um, and in particular, Ashley Young and Wan Bissaka, the way they just pushed up so high into Liverpool's mm. um, midfield, um, which meant that Arnold and Robertson never really got comfortable. Um, and it seems to be when Liverpool or when Arnold doesn't play well, Liverpool don't play well um, because he's such a, a huge source of creativity um, and quality on the right hand side. Phil, how did you feel United set up in terms of kind of squashing Liverpool's? Um, the way they press and how to get so much out of the fullbacks. I, I thought like that. I completely agree with uh, what you said there, Kevin. In terms of how well they managed to, to kind of discommode the fullbacks, both in terms of how happy they were to hit balls into the channels for Rashford to chase, uh, while the fullbacks did get to push up, and then how quickly they were to be on top of the fullbacks and basically only give them that option of the ball. They cut passing lanes inside very well as well. So the only option really was that kind of curled ball down the line to Origi or Manny, who who were kind of backing up onto a defender and then had to come back to the full like back to the fullback or whatever play it square. I thought they were quite good at giving at limiting the out balls for either fullback. Um, while at the same time, any time the fullbacks did get past halfway, United's first uh, United out ball in turn then was just to lash it down into the space they'd created and didn't really care. Uh, if it created loads, it was more sort of pulled the centre half Van Dijk or Matip out to the wings, create a bit of a gap, and just just kind of discommode a little bit, a little bit from how they usually play. And I like I couldn't agree anymore when you say that Arnold, when he doesn't play well, Liverpool can struggle because like that midfield as Klopp has constructed it is like a dynamic, hard-working midfield. Fabinho cuts passing lanes, and 
Wijnaldum and Henderson carry a lot of water for the front three and allow the fullbacks to be the creative fulcrum. When the fullbacks aren't creating, that midfield isn't set up to take on that mantle. And so I thought they struggled mm-hmm. as well. Like I thought Henderson had one of his, his, his poorer games in a while. And Wijnaldum, I didn't think was too bad in the first half. And Fabinho kind of did as, as many Fabinho things as he could. But the midfield isn't going to be able to pick up the slack create, creatively from the fullbacks. So I thought United did a good job in funneling the ball away from Liverpool's front three in dangerous positions, uh, only allowed them to have the ball in non-threatening positions, and then were happy enough to allow the creative burden to fall on mid- on the midfield. I think that's why we were a bit stodgy. Mm. Um, and like I, th- I thought the, the changes made a big difference for, yeah. uh, for Liverpool, from Liverpool's point of view. Um, and Origi, I'm not sure he worked. Um, I don't know if this is the type of game that suits him. He's a little bit... like I think he's quite effective from the left against smaller sides, um, but then not necessarily against sides who are playing a back three because you've got a centre-half who can cover him and a full-back. When, well, well, they're playing a back five, let's be honest about it. So like they're kind of double up on him and he's definitely not somebody who can who can handle that. So I thought United mm-hmm. setup was actually quite effective in limiting Liverpool, um, which I suppose is kind of an interesting thing to even have to say that United were setting up to limit Liverpool at home at Old Trafford, but they did it quite effectively for the vast majority of the game. Mm. Uh, just uh, my only interjection there, lads, would be like, and I know this is kind of stating the obvious to a large extent, but was Salah missed there a, a hell of a lot? I mean, he obviously, like, the, the attack functions so, so well when he does play alongside Mane and Firmino, and, and you know, Origi doesn't give you the same dynamic to it, despite him scoring a lot of important goals every now and again, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it, it did feel like, you know, Liverpool. We're, we're, we're missing uh, Salah a lot there, but can I just put this to you, lads? Like from from my point of view, watching Liverpool sort of like um, season, or at least in the last, I'd say maybe in the last six weeks, they've not really played all that well. Like they've been scraping results. They didn't really play well against Sheffield United, despite getting the one 0 win. You know, they weren't massively impressive mm. against Chelsea when they got the two one win. Um, yeah, it just it just feels like you know it's it's probably been a long time since they've really fired properly. Yeah. Um. Back to your seller point. First of all, I think mm. um he had a bad game at Old Trafford last year. I think he's kind of struggled whenever we've played Man United, which uh, um probably suits the the team overall. But I think if he was there today and you had him on Marcus Rojo rather than Mane and Mane out on Lindelof, who I don't think is is as pacey. Um, obviously, Wan Bissak is covering back there, but I think if we had the opportunity to to, to push Sella on Rojo, it could have been a little bit different in terms of mm. of stretching the back three there, um, and putting Young under pressure as well. Because I think out of either fullback, I thought Robertson seemed to have a little bit more success on Young rather than mm. rather than um, Arnold on the other side. Um, on your other point. I, I, I definitely agree, and I, which is why I was kind of surprised that a lot of people were expecting Liverpool to rock up today um, and hammer United um, as bad as they've been. Liverpool haven't been really beating teams hugely well over the past couple of weeks. They've kind of been grinding out results. They, they got a massive result against Leicester, pretty lucky late on with the mm. with the penalty. Um, very lucky to get a result against Sheffield United, who were who were fantastic. Um, and even against uh, Salzburg in in the Champions League, I mean they had to grind. They had to grind uh, massively there. Um, so coming into a big game like this, where United were obviously going to be up for it, um, all he needed a response, which is what he got. Um, all form books aside, you know you have to put them aside in this type of game. So I think it was it was, it was a little bit. Um, not hugely expecting of Liverpool to, to kind of steamroll United coming into this. Um, I don't know, Phil, if you would agree there. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like recent past experience in Old Trafford that made me more wary than anything. Um, I, I, like, I thought Liverpool actually played really well against Leicester. And like, if you look at kind of some of the stats, like the XG and stuff kind of yeah. bears out that they, that they were quite good. And admittedly, did they did get a penalty in the last minute and were lucky to come away with all three points. But on the on the balance of play there, I think they deserved it. I just didn't maybe create as much. But in general, I completely agree with the point that uh, they've kind of been huffing and puffing a little bit. The the only thing about that is they were kind of like this last season as well. Um, 
throughout the whole season, they just kept winning. They didn't blow a huge amount of teams away. They're, they haven't been kind of massive blowouts since the season before. Um, they just brought this level of consistency last year where they were conceding less and one or two goals were, were winning games for them. And they've kind of carried it on since. It's not flown as well, absolutely. Uh, and things are a little kind of abrasive and maybe a little too abrasive at this early stage of the season. You don't like to see them relying on as many kind of shonky one-goal wins, late goals and all that sort of stuff. Um, so they were huffing and puffing a little bit coming up to it and then added into the fact, like you said, Kev, that you know, coming into Old Trafford, that kind of cliche, the form goes out the window, really seems to apply in this in this game. And um, my like positivity around the fixture is kind of nearly inverse to Liverpool's chances of winning the league at the time of the fixture. The further away we are from it, the better you nearly feel they'll play, and the more chance you have of, of getting a result. But um, yeah, like they they hadn't been in great form, and then coming into Old Trafford, like, the expectation for, for for some reason was there that they were going to steamroll them, but it never really felt like it was on the cards. Um, Keen, I know you're uh, a huge uh, Ver fan, and we've, we've been scratching <laughs> our heads um, all season long with this. Um, yeah, and we've we in terms of high profile games, we've kind of escaped Ver so far. But mm. today, now we had two pretty big decisions. We'll start with the um, the decision that allowed Rashford's goal. Um, so obviously, Divock Origi appeared to be fouled in the build up. Um, it looked like a foul, even though he did kind of go down softly enough. But mm. you see those fouls given nine times out of ten. Mm. What was your reaction? And do you think it was a goal, or would you have um, would you have pulled it back? So first and foremost, Kev, right? I do want to just kind of mitigate my uh, my actual fandom of our here, right? <laughs> I'm just put, what I would say is that it's the more mental irrationalness of like or rationality of like of fans who just hate it so much. That's all. I, I wouldn't say I'm a massive fan of it. I know I'm backtracking here a wee bit, <laughs> but look, what I would say is yeah, I thought I thought it was a goal, right? And the reason why I thought it was a goal was because the fact that the referee didn't give the foul. Is like, I mean, everybody, that, that is not obviously a foul to me. That is not so obviously a foul. You could get 10 people, right, into a room to look at that and say, yes, it's a foul. No, it's, a, uh, no, it's not a foul. Seven could say, yes, it's a foul. Three could say, no, it's not a foul. And then where are you left? So, you, you know, you kind of, like for me, like you have to go with the on-field decision of the referee there. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, people are saying, oh, they're backing up their mates and, you know, this, that and the other. Like, uh, maybe it is that. Maybe that's what it is. They're backing up their mates. But, like, in, in my in my view, I just couldn't see anything else but not just just playing on there. Like, do you know what I mean? So, for me, that was a good goal. That was a good goal. Um, the second goal, again, it's, it's you know, it's a handball. Like, by, mm-hmm. by the rules, it's a handball. Again, I made the point... Um, in during the game, um, that if that goal had been scored last year and there was no VAR, right? I don't think anybody would be like losing their mm. shit over or if, if the goal was given. Yeah, people might be like, "Oh, it was a handball," you know, it would have been so. But it wasn't so obviously a handball, and it was quite clear that he didn't exactly mean to manipulate the ball in, yeah. in, in to his advantage ball just kind of like it was one of those real innocuous ones but but by the rules it's a handball so it has to be real because it's in his it's in his favor so like in each in each scenario I, I i gotta say like i think it got it right like i, I do but my issue w- w- with with at the minute is that it's the it's the decision it's the length of the decision time that they're taking to, to make the calls. It's absolutely mental. Like in the Villa game yesterday against Brighton, Villa had a, a goal ruled out for offside. I've seen a guy on uh, on Twitter basically say that he had celebrated the goal for a good minute. Um, he'd run down to the concourse to meet a friend. He, met, he, he looked around for a bit, found his friend. They had a drink of a pint. And by the time they actually had the drink, they found out that the goal was, was just about ruled out offside. Like that's mental. Like, I was actually watching it going, you know, and then when they did score about three or four minutes later, I didn't even feel like celebrating, mostly yeah. because I was really, really hungover and any sort of movements would have just, you know, possibly finished me off at that point. Um, <laughs> but, like, but 
it, yeah, it was just it, it's the length of the decision making time that that that's that's really got an issue here. Um, I would personally take it. I would strip it right back at the minute. I would strip it right back, and I would say I think Lineker was making them. Um, that's Gary for people who don't know him, who I'm on about. Um, he made the point earlier on on Twitter that you know maybe they should. I think this is the point that he was making that they should strip back the decision making for like really, really like you know dodgy decisions um, and not just like every little thing yeah. that the referee might not spot because I think that's where the issue is coming in because people are spotting fouls and you know there, there's like there's a lot of sort of inconsistencies at the minute with, with how they're applying it so I would strip back uh, you know going forward um, and, and basically make it I don't know if it's like a case of like handballs and just apply that rule or, or something and, and actual offsides and leave everything else to the referee. Klopp, Klopp. Sorry, Kev. I just I I, I don't know if you if you saw uh, Klopp's quotes from the postmaster press conference. I thought he made an interesting point on um on United's goal. Um, he so like unsurprisingly, right? Klopp thought it was a foul, right? And <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly, so do, so do I, right? I'll, I'll I'll say I thought it was a foul, and at the time, mm. I was surprised Atkinson didn't whistle for it, just because it's exactly the type of foul that you see refs whistle literally dozens of times a game. The ball comes into mm. the the, uh, the defender mm. or into the attacker, regardless of how much uh, contact there is, the attacker takes a tumble, and the ref just gives a free and no fuss, uh, no no major fuss. So I, I was surprised at the time Atkinson didn't mm. whistle for it initially. Uh, when I went back to VAR, um, you view the, the the review through the prism of there has to be a clear and obvious error to overturn it. Mm, exactly, yeah. Right, so you're setting a very high bar there. If you're yeah. assuming that, uh, that Atkinson has made a decision that it wasn't a foul, VAR is saying, okay, it wasn't clear and obvious that it was a foul, so we can't mm. uh, overturn the decision. Klopp's point, I'm actually thought it was interesting, it's one I hadn't thought before, um, that he thinks Atkinson didn't whistle because VAR was his safety net. So you see it all the time with offsides now, right? Mm. The linesmen are told not to flag because you can go back and disallow the goal retroactively, mm. but obviously you can't restart play if you do if you do flag. I'd never thought about it from the ref's point of view that they mightn't whistle because they think it's going to be pulled back if it is a foul. I, I don't know about it. It feels like a bit of a leap, but it's interesting when you think that if Atkinson doesn't whistle because he thinks if I'm after fucking up there, VAR will cover me. But VAR have are only allowed to intervene if it's a clear and obvious error, which mm-hmm. uh, a tackle is rarely going to be, especially one like that where there's minimal contact. So there is that little kind of gap where if refs are kind of being a bit shithousy about it, there are going to be decisions that slip through the cracks in terms of if it's not a clear and obvious error, but I, the ref would normally whistle it. Yeah. If it goes to VAR, it's not going to be overturned. I, I just thought it was interesting. Um, I, I thought it was foul at the time. Am I surprised VAR didn't turn it over? Not really, because tackles are going to have a very high threshold for mm. uh, overturning it. So I, I'm more annoyed at Martin Atkinson um, than I am with VAR, just because the rules that are in with VAR at the minute, and that clear and obvious bar makes it difficult for a tackle to be overruled. Uh, Manny's one mm. I thought it was fair enough that was, that was labelled a handball. Uh, like you said, Kim, I don't think it was Terry Henry double slapping the ball into an advantageous <laughs> position. But at the same time, there that's the rules. And when you see the replay, it's pretty obviously that it does touch his hand, so it, 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 it's a handball, and I think VAR got that one bang on. Um, I'd have more of a problem with Atkinson than VAR in the application of the rules uh, for United's goal. But uh, if, uh, to kind of rob a Roy Keane quote again from that night with, with Thierry Henry, uh, if I was the manager, I'd go into the dressing room and I wouldn't even mention VAR. Um, mm. I think Liverpool's performance was uh, more of a worry than, than what VAR. I think if Liverpool turned up and played like they could, Bar, we could still talk about it, but we wouldn't have to give as much oxygen to yeah. it. Well, I mean, like th- th- this, this would be the worry for me, lads. The worry for me would be that you know, basically, the um, how VAR is discussed. So I heard like Nuno, um, Nuno was talking about it yesterday, where it was like, yeah. "This is VAR. We have to get used to VAR." Blah 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 blah. But I don't think anybody is actually going to get used to this. Like, yeah. this is my worry. Like. Because this is just going to be your talking point every single week. Something goes like uh, horribly astray be- because stuff keeps falling through the cracks. The, the way you've just described that that that, that potential for a field, you know what I mean. So it's like, it, you know, instead of this kind of like, do you remember when like Twitter 
um, Twitter was like 180 characters and then it doubled it and everybody was losing their shit going I can't believe this I can't believe it and then two weeks later nobody was talking about it well like this yeah. is like that. it's like the anti- the antithesis to this is, is going to be like VAR is just going to be always 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 a talking point every weekend it feels like it um, and Phil on kind of jumping back to your point there in terms of uh, the referee possibly letting go, letting it go, knowing that he does have that safety net um, of VAR, and obviously he didn't know it was going to lead to a goal. But VAR are probably looking at that, thinking Atkinson was in a pretty good position. He, you know, he wasn't a million miles from the play. If he doesn't think it was a foul, I'm not going to overturn his decision to let play on, um, because it was a fairly innocuous foul. Um, and I mean, I've, this happened last year. To be some kind of grumbles over, but it wouldn't have been as as, as hugely big as it was um, this year with with VAR in the situation. And obviously, straight away the players were on top of the referee, um, knowing that this goal could possibly be overturned. Whereas last year it was a matter of okay, it's a goal, let's get on with it. Um, so there's so many grey areas, and and there's so much. I, I don't know what people are what people want to expect from Ver. It was it was a foul and but depending on, on on the referee he could have given a foul. Atkinson probably thought that Origi went over softly. The Ver team probably could have thought the same. Um so there's a, a huge amount of grey area and there's a huge kind of possibility for inconsistency there. Um and you'd wonder is is are we better off kind of limiting it to instances in the box um, or for egregious offsides um, and penalty fouls and stuff like that, because mm. if you got if you got to a point where you know that call is is chalked off for offside or or for the foul in Origi, like are we going to look at examples where there's fouls like that in the back corner and that same play leads to a, a goal fifteen twenty passes later, you know it it. it, it there's not. It, there's a huge um, grey area there, and I mean, it probably was a foul. But like you said in your analogy, um, keen for Manny's goal last year. If that had happened, there wouldn't have been a huge amount of grumble. And I think the same would have happened with the Origi foul um, and Rashford's goal there. I agree with that. It's it's because we perceive now, or it's been kind of the bar was going to eliminate all mistakes. And the way that the rules are currently are currently written, it's probably going to eliminate all egregious mistakes, but it's going to leave a lot of grey area um, and a lot more angry people. Because like before, if that wasn't given, like Liverpool fans would have given their child about Atkinson probably for the rest of tonight, and then by the time the next game rolls around, it's kind of forgotten. Mm. But because VAR and the like, I I don't know who was in charge of VAR today. I know they announced, but I don't know who it was. So. I don't know who that, I don't know that fella or that woman's name. I just know it was VAR. And VAR is in the next game and the next game and the next game. So it's not even, geez, Martin Atkinson always rides Liverpool. Now it's VAR, who's there in every game. And it's a different person every time. But it's this kind of uh, this omnipresent thing um, that's going to be, uh, it's going to constantly remind you. So, like, if Atkinson was who Liverpool gave out about and he doesn't ref another game of theirs for 10 games. It'll be 10 games before Liverpool go, Jesus, remember Atkinson didn't give that free. Whereas now it's VAR. The next time there's a dodgy check against Liverpool, which could happen as soon as uh, the Champions game midweek or next week against Spurs, it's like that's fucking VAR again. Um, so instead of actually getting rid of all our problems, maybe it's that and more. You know, it feels a bit kind of um, 1984, doesn't it? I can't who well did. I can remember his name. And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class one, class two, class three. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, they have many problems. I want my players to play with balls. Yeah.
We're on with Gary from the fantastic classic football shirts, um, the ASOS, I would say, for football hipsters. Um, so for anyone unfamiliar with the website, I would suggest checking it out um, for the nostalgic vibes alone. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Gary, I think um, starting off, it'd be cool to hear um, about the background of classic football shirts um, and how it grows and how it's grown and evolved over time to being pretty much um, a one-stop shop for for uh, old and retro football kits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a, a bit of a wild ride, really. Um, two guys, one of them, my brother, Doug, um, a guy from his course at Manchester University, Matt, set up the business just over 13 years ago. Um, started very small, just pretty much a rail of football shirts in a student house tucked away in Manchester. And uh, as the years have, have passed by, we've just bought and sold a lot of kits and, and kind of started to gradually get known uh, in the early years. And then it kind of, I guess, with the explosion of interest in the football shirt culture, um, I've kind of yeah ridden the way for the last six or seven years. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I suppose what I was wondering is how how do you source your jerseys? Um, I was reading um, a little bit about you online, and it looks like um, AC Milan kind of helped uh, you get um, kind of get going there with a, with a huge batch of of, um, of old jerseys. But like, do you go out to clubs? Do you go to old suppliers or brands? Or I mean, do you even buy off of jerseys off people who just want to sell? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, really, these days. Um, a lot of people sell shirts directly through the website to us. Um, in many cases, kind of replacing their old kits with the newer um, seasons ranges that we've got available on the site. And, yeah, we'll we'll try and operate with any club, any brand, um, to try and buy an interest in shirts. Obviously, with the interest peaking in vintage shirts the the price of them is always increasing um it's been that way for well since the very beginning really for us so it quite quickly emerged that it would be important to kind of have two strands to the business um because we had a lot of people coming to the site early on and saying like what you're doing but i don't want to pay 75 to 100 quid for a football shirt i kind of want to get something quite interesting for you know 20 to 30 quid let's say and um yeah i guess a combination of both has really helped us stand out and um yeah establish ourselves as you said the asos of football shirts somebody actually <laughs> the porn hub of football uh of football. That's even better. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with that one <laughs> that, that, that's even better um, I'm interested to hear how how did the AC Milan deal come about? Because um, from reading it, it sounds like they just had an old warehouse somewhere full of AC Milan gear. Yeah, that was pretty much the case. Yeah, um, I think obviously you don't expect big football clubs to kind of have this um, have this kind of thing going on. Um, we were still, I would say, a very small operation when we first approached AC Milan and we did that through a guy called Ettore. Um, kind of a number of people that would just turn up to come and see us and kind of have a look through the shirts that we had and almost ask for a job <laughs> in a weird way. And um, yeah, he, he ended up contacting a lot of, uh, of different clubs in Italy and Milan was, you know, obviously not really going to get anything bigger than AC Milan, particularly that, early 90s era of, dom uh, of domination and you know the the those stuff from the champions league final that they won at old trafford yeah, it really was a stunning collection but um yeah it just came about from i guess them not being very organized really 
Um, and it sounded like was Shevchenko's match worn jersey, or were there match worn jerseys and everything um, in the collection? I suppose I mean, we've had the we must have had the stuff for nearly ten years, and I still find that we've got little pockets of it still, <laughs> still to kind of process because there was. You know, and you when you think about the the range of stuff that a team has, it is everything from you know the the match worn shirts that everybody is uh, interested in, but then you know the shorts, the underpants, the the balls in which they were trained. <laughs> That's kind of the one of the best ones for for me. I watched a lot of uh, football Italia growing up and. Because there was no overall ball sponsor in the league, you would play with whoever uh, was manufacturing the kit. So if you played away from home, you would have a different ball to train with um, in the week building up to the game. So we've got you know Udinese, Brescia, um, Roma, all these teams like these half deflated balls that they've trained with, and um, yeah, it's just just incredible, really. Gary, it's uh, Phil here. Uh, just, just a quick one from me. As, as somebody who's bought stuff from the site, kind of as diverse as a Zambian away jersey to a Danila Spore third strip, <laughs> uh, my first point, my first part of call tends to be the deadly uh, clearance section you guys have on the website, and I kind of shop around and see what catches my eye. But is there a specific kit or particular teams that you guys see most demand for on the site? Obviously, there's the, you know, there's the demand for the big teams and that kind of extends itself to the clearance stock as well. So, um, you know, if you get your Barcelona's, your Man United's, your Liverpool's, any of their, even their recent season stuff is is kind of the, the biggest volume. But I'd say that we kind of try and specialise uh, specialize ourselves in a, exactly what you said, to be honest, just the... The kind of weird and wonderful, the ones that are going to catch your eye, the the hipster European teams. Um, definitely, always like to have some stuff in from Italy. So we we always tend to get the Napoli kits in every season. Um, yeah, whatever kind of catches our eye as football fans that that's in the market, I guess we will try and buy in and. Um, yeah, with that intention that if you're browsing the site, there's bound to be something there that catches your eye. Obviously, beauty is is in the eye to behold, and I think if, if like the, the four of us here could probably agree on broadly the nicest looking kits on the site and kind of in football in general. But so I was wondering, would would you be able to tell us some of the worst, kind of the, the maddest kits you guys have, or in general that you've kind of seen that you'd love to get on the on the site, just kind of really out there designs? Well, there has been this trend that particularly in the last six or seven years for for smaller clubs to kind of do these weird and crazy kits almost as a publicity stunt. And um, when we first put uh, an exhibition of shirts on last year in London, we found that as well as kind of being attracted to the match-worn shirts, people coming in off the street were looking at these um, these crazy shirts that we had on display as part of this getting noticed category of the exhibition. Um, the one which springs to mind is the Loha, the prawn shirt. Um, and they're a very small Spanish team. Um, we bought over a thousand of those jerseys. And weirdly enough, Marca, the Spanish newspaper, picked it up just sort of asking the question, why is this? company in England buying all these shirts for this third division Spanish football team <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah th- that's the one that stands out as just uh, as pretty horrific really but I mean there's there's so many out there as you as you guys well know um, we you know we've kind of found a home for them I guess people do kind of like them in a twisted way um, Gary is there such thing as, say, you've art collectors and they might come to, uh, I don't know, so whoever's uh, auctions or whatever? Is there like, do you get guys who come and say they have a really particular rare jersey um, that you want to get a hold of? Do you ever um, have those kind of guys? 
Yeah, I mean, we anybody that gets in touch with us, we tend to want to help them out. And I think we're in a very fortunate position these days to to have such a wide collection ourselves um, and even kind of an archive which extends behind the scenes of the uh, of the website. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely been people over the years that have requested um, special shirts. Yeah, I can remember. I mean, there was a guy that was after a, a match one Van Basten. It's that kind of yeah, that kind of player. Yeah, mm-hmm. something Gary, for the for the wall at home. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Gary, I just wanted to ask you. Obviously, uh, Kevin, I, and even Phil as well. We're all, you know, social media is is a great place for any business to to grow and to you know, to basically sell their product. Um, and obviously, you guys have kind of exploded, I'd say, in the last maybe three, four years. Um, and I just wanted to know, like, obviously your message in terms of any brand is quite simple. It's like you've got classic, you know, football shirts or football shirts to sell. But is there any way that you, like, is there any particularly particular strategy that you've put in place? Um, and in terms of the different platforms, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that like that differentiates each platform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've definitely made um, a, a conscious effort in terms of resources and having eyes sort of constantly looking across social media. Um, I would say, as the marketing guy from the business, that I probably got one of the easiest marketing jobs in the world because <laughs> have her. An instant kind of adoration for the products, and uh, yeah, on, on some respects, it, it it's very kind of it's a very straightforward message that we have to share. But then, as the business has grown and your audience gets wider, and they don't necessarily have that kind of niche, um, niche almost encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's happened in. English football over the last 20 years, you do have to vary that message slightly. Um, mm. We have a quite a big audience in the US and um, I think there is culturally a slightly different approach to um, the game and obviously there's, there's less of that automatic knowledge from, let's say, cult players from the mid-90s who are playing in the Premier League. If I said Ali Deer to an... A, a, and in the US they wouldn't maybe know in the yeah. same way that, that someone here would be and that's led us to try and sort of um, yeah sort of put, a, put an approach together to get those clearance based products out there and um, to kind of vary things as much as possible and cover as many teams as possible yeah it, it was it's something that struck us on the uh, on the site on on instagram particularly was that you know you guys have, have and well i would say like you know a, a fairly significant number of of influencers in verda commas where i was like you know you'd juan Mata and, and a few guys i mean like have you actively gone out there and, and like asked these guys to 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 model for you as such and, and you know to help sell the product or is it something that you know was juan Mata like maybe like bought into the business etc um, I would say that we've leveraged our kind of position as the market leader to yeah. be there for when people have needed the shirts, and I think that it's become kind of as much as as much as it is a content race for me trying to market football shirts as a retail product. It's a content race for the the clubs themselves the brands themselves and then even the players themselves and um in the case of all of the above they have very clever agencies and individuals that work for them that kind of understand that the uh the football shirt is something authentic to share uh with the people that follow you and it it does tend to work in in, in sort of giving everybody a positive message really i mean with the in the case of my matter i mean he's he's obviously a huge vintage shirt enthusiast yeah yeah you know from a ruthless marketing perspective i guess when man united posted 
that picture with him in the old shirt, they know that that's going to tap into what fans like to see. This yeah. guy gets it. He's he's going a bit further for the club, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that I would say that has been the the kind of way in which we've acted with it. That being said, you know when we've done our own exhibitions and events, we've invited players. We had Rude Hullet at our event in uh, in Manchester a couple, well, nearly a couple of years ago now, and um, yeah, we've we sponsored um, a, a game in Italy last year, which is attended by like twenty thousand people, uh, all wearing old shirts, and they had Del Piero as one of the star names. So. There is, there is a bit of it from our side, but certainly, yeah, we're, we're kind of fortunate to be yeah. in the right place at the right time as well. Yeah. My, my last point would be uh, would be just that I suppose I'll preempt the question with the actual with my answer, right? It's like my favourite <laughs> shirt of all time is uh, the Fiorentina uh, home kit with the Nintendo um, sponsor. Now, one of my football favourite footballers of all time is Gabriel Badastuda. So if I Gabriel Badastuda in that kit and you know i would market the shit out of that basically so my answer or my question to you would be if you could pick one footballer what one kit to stick on the site who would it be one footballer in one kit yeah <laughs> that is uh, that's a, an impossible question right I think the whatever I say, somebody that works with me in the office is going to be like, "You should have said something else." <laughs> yeah. um, there's definitely some players that I would love to tick off the list um, for one reason or another. I mean, I'd like to see Zidane unveiled as Juventus manager, holding up the pink centenary away shirt. That would be quite a nice. good thing. Nice. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do an episode of what I wore with Beckham, with Ronaldo. Um, I, yeah, there's too many to say, really. Francesco Totti as well, reuniting him with an old Roma shirt. Yeah, that would be quite special. Yeah, the list is the list is endless. Um, you mentioned the um, what I wore, which is something that I think you do in conjunction with BD Sports. Um, I suppose how how did that come about and how have the players reacted to it? Um, I've seen most recently you had James Milner on board. Yeah, well, it it came about funnily enough um, from somebody having visited one of the shops in London. Um, we started to do pop up shops in the build up and during the the World Cup last year, and ended up keeping a shop open and various people obviously passed through uh, in that part of the world. And yeah, I think it was something that somebody had mentioned in a a meeting at BT and a few of them had visited the shop again. And yeah, eventually we, we met up with them and it all fell into place. Um, Yeah. Regarding the reactions, it's kind of going back to, to what I was saying before really about the social media stuff. It's, it's a really unique way to get a, a player to open up and genuinely talk about something that they're interested in. Um, certainly, some players have been massively passionate about the shirts themselves, and you could tell that they'd kind of had that uh, typical kind of childhood of being in a sports shop on a Saturday afternoon browsing the the shirts for just about every team they could get hold of. I mean, Rio Ferdinand loved Italian kits. Um, Milner, even just last week, was going on about the the Euro 96 kit that he was wearing in that episode. Um, Yeah, it does really sort of take them back to a a place where they might not necessarily have have even thought about some things. Um, Yeah, we did another episode with Gianfranco Zola where he picked up uh, a few shirts of other players that had played with him at Chelsea, one of them being Kaziragi, and said, oh, had Kaziragi not got injured, we probably would have won the league, or at least, you know, I think we would have won the league. And, yeah, it it wouldn't have been something that he would have said in a conventional interview. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a crazy experience, really. I mean, <laughs> you don't expect to get put in a room with the player and be able to kind of completely curate the the story and almost kind of try and yeah. freak them out a little bit by going back to their childhood and you know having the shirts ready for them and things like that. I suppose it has, it has a little bit of extra charm to it compared to a, a run-of-the-mill interview um, you'd normally see, which which, which is pretty cool. Um, you guys are coming over to Dublin in November. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we're fi- yeah, finally making it uh, finally making it over. Uh, the pop-up shop opens on the 5th of November uh, until the 10th. Uh, it's on South Ann Street, so middle of Dublin. Uh, we'll hopefully have close to a thousand shirts in the shop um so if you do visit and there's something that you're after that you don't see out on the on the rails then give uh, give one of the staff uh ask ask them to pull some more stuff out for you and we'll also have a a gallery space of island shirts downstairs and and should be uh, doing one or two events with former players over the course of the week so yeah really looking forward to coming over people have definitely been asking for it for a while and even when we were over actually that there was three or four vintage shirts on on the street which was good to see there's definitely um a little pocket of uh of fans in ireland that uh, that love their their retro kits you'd often see um particularly I, I find you see a lot of syria kits and italian football kits um roaming the streets um, so thanks for that, uh, Gary. Um, we'll be sure to plug the, um, the pop-up shop on Twitter um, and our social media closer to the time. And uh, hopefully one of us will be able to make it up to Dublin one of the days um, and check out what you have there in stock. Um, so really appreciate coming on tonight. Thanks for that. No worries. Great stuff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, yeah, as I say, I hope that you can make it down. And uh, yeah, really excited to be coming over. Great Cheers, stuff. Gary. Cheers. All the best. Thanks, Gary.